The following sermon is from the archives of Dr. Stephen Olford. It was preached during his distinguished ministry at Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. Our current series from 2 Corinthians, God's Call to Church Action. This is part 19, The Fellowship of Jubilation. Our text, 2 Corinthians 7, verses 2 through 16. Now, here is Dr. Stephen Olford. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Will you open your New Testaments at 2 Corinthians, chapter 7? And this morning, we conclude the first section of this matchless letter. For our visiting friends, we're pursuing a series of studies in the second epistle of Paul to the Corinthians under the general title of God's Call to Church Action. And in the providence of God, the passage this morning has a message, I believe, for everyone bowed in this congregation, as well as to those who hear our message across the airwaves. We're speaking this morning on the fellowship of jubilation. The verses before us, as I've already mentioned, brings us to a definite conclusion of a section we've designed to call God's Call to Christian Fellowship. Seven times over, the Apostle Paul has confronted his readers with the demands as well as the dynamics of Christian fellowship. Now, in another burst of autobiographical language, he writes of the fellowship of jubilation. Last week, you remember, the fellowship of separation. The connection with what has preceded is obvious if we bear in mind what Paul has been saying to us all along. You remember that his basic theme throughout this epistle is the word of reconciliation and the work of reconciliation. We have a message to preach. We have a task to do. The gospel is primal. It is first in responsibility and in importance. But alongside of that is our social concern, its ramifications and implications in the contemporary world in which we live. Now, where such fellowship is directly embraced and enjoyed, there is jubilation. Certainly, Paul had hard things to say to these Corinthians, especially in his painful letter, which many scholars believe followed the first letter to the Corinthians and preceded the one we're studying. But with confidence, he now anticipates the joy of mutual acceptance, the joy of actual repentance, and the joy of virtual obedience. Now, with these leading thoughts in mind, let us proceed to examine and expound the underlying message which I believe God has for all time, and especially for us here this morning. First, then, the joy of mutual acceptance, verses 2 and 4. Receive us. We have wronged no man. We have corrupted no man. We have defrauded no man. And then he goes on to say, I'm filled with comfort. I'm exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. Where there is genuine responsiveness to the truth of God, the result is always one of mutual acceptance. This is precisely what Paul is anticipating as he pens these words. Indeed, the news that he's received through Titus has comforted his heart. There were things wrong at Corinth. Sin had been allowed and tolerated in the church, but now discipline has been applied. And as we shall see presently, repentance has followed 
with genuine sorrow. And Paul is rejoicing and is comforted. And he says, this gives me reason to believe that you've accepted me in spite of all I've said to you. And certainly I have accepted you. Make a place for me. Open your hearts to me. And he shows us that all true mutual acceptance is based on two things of paramount importance. Here is the first one. A shared openness. A shared openness. Receive us. We have wronged no man. We have corrupted no man. We have defrauded no man. The word receive here is a weak translation. Moffat renders it, make a place for me. Paul has already chided the Corinthians in chapter 2 and again in chapter 6 and verse 12 for being constricted and restricted in their affections. But here he renews the appeal and assures them that there's no reason for restraint or constraint on their part. Not only was his heart open to them, but his very life. In spite of what his critics were saying to him, he says, we've wronged no man, we've corrupted no man, we've defrauded no man. Or in words that we can all understand here this morning, morally, doctrinally, and financially, Paul could claim that he was clear before Almighty God and he was clear before his fellow man in spite of the insinuations and innuendos of his cruel enemies. In other words, there was an openness about his heart and life that merited acceptance by his brethren. So he says, receive us. And he's using the editorial we and us. Receive us. We want you. Our hearts are wide open. Our lives are wide open. Receive us. Make a place for us. Make a place for us in your hearts. Now what was true in Paul's day is ever true of the Church of Jesus Christ. We can never hope to enjoy mutual acceptance without a shared openness. If I open my heart to you, my friend, it's because I believe that you're going to open your heart to me. If I come to you with a transparency and an honesty before God and men, I expect you to reciprocate that in like manner and to open your heart to me. This is the outworking of what John calls walking in the light. Where this is not true, we're to confess our faults one to another and to pray for one another that we may be healed. And I want to say that most of the rifts and schisms and divisions in our church today and throughout the country today is simply because of that lack of openness. I care not if you call it the conference table. I care if you call, care not if you call it the negotiations across the labor problems. I care not if you call it dialogue within our theological world. I care not if you call it openness and discussion between brother and brother. Ultimately, we can never enjoy mutual acceptance until we know this openness, this utter transparency before God and before one another. Until I can say, make a place for me in your heart, Make a place for me in your heart. And you likewise say to me, make a place in your heart. And we find that we have a solidarity of sin. That's where we're one. When that sin is dealt with at the cross of Jesus Christ and cleansed by the precious blood, why there can emerge that oneness, that oneness to which Paul is driving here in mutual acceptance. Yes, Paul says mutual acceptance is based, first of all, on this shared 
openness with one another. Oh, that God might pour upon us throughout our land today this openness. There has never been a revival yet. There has never been a movement of the Spirit of God in history yet. And I've researched into all these areas without this distinguishing mark that when God begins to move, men and women no longer close up. They're wide open. Confessions are made. Restitution is made. Sin is put away. And men and women come together in that kind of unity that's good and pleasant to God. And the oil is poured out. And the dew is distilled. And God commands blessing from heaven, even life forevermore. But with that shared openness, notice he says another thing. The joy of mutual acceptance is not only dependent upon a shared openness, but also on a shared oneness. I speak not to condemn you, he says, for I have said before that ye are in our hearts to die and to live with you. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my glorying of you. I'm filled with comfort. I'm exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. These are truly remarkable words, verses 3 through 4, and we need to understand them. With an openness of life, there must be a oneness of life. So Paul reminds his Corinthian converts that they were always in his heart because he shared a common death he shared a common life with them. Now, some commentators maintain that this is physical death and physical life, but I do not share that viewpoint. I am persuaded that Paul means it in the deeply spiritual sense. He's saying here what he teaches in the sixth chapter of the epistle to the Romans. To share in the death of Christ is to share also in the life of Christ. But even more important than this, to die with Christ is to be delivered from all that divides. To rise with Christ is to be empowered with all that unites. So with this conviction, he declares, Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my glorying of you. I'm filled with comfort. I'm exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. Paul has no reservations in glorying in his brethren because he shared with them a common death and a common life. And show me any man, whoever he is, whatever the color of his skin, if he has known what it is to really die with Christ, so that all purely outward distinctions have been buried and sin has been dealt with, and he shares a common life in Jesus Christ under one supreme head, there's not only a shared openness, but there's a shared oneness. This is true unity. Not the superimposition of an organizational unity from outside, but that intrinsic unity that comes through oneness with Jesus Christ in a shared death and a shared life. To learn this truth is to experience the joy of mutual acceptance. A man's country, color, or culture constitute no barrier so long as there is a shared openness and oneness in Jesus Christ. And I want to say any preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ which does not ultimately produce this mutual acceptance falls short of the mark. Now, if that's the first point of this remarkable passage, the second is equally important. With the fellowship of jubilation, there is not only mutual acceptance, but notice, secondly, the joy of actual repentance. Actual repentance. Look at verses 9 onwards. Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. It is important to point out that verses 5 through 12 have a close connection with chapter 2 and verse 14, just by way of historical sequence. 
You'll recall that Paul tells us in that previous passage that he had no rest because he did not know how the Corinthian situation had developed since he sent them his painful letter. So leaving Troas, he went into Macedonia, possibly Philippi, and there, to his joy, he found Titus returning from Corinth. The tidings which Titus brought him filled him with comfort and joy because he learned that the wrongs in Corinth had been righted, that the saints in the local assembly had actually repented. So he says, though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. To understand what he means by the joy of actual repentance, Paul puts in contrast the repentance of worldly sorrow that leads to death and godly sorrow that leads to salvation. And by way of a parenthesis, I might say, that nowhere in your Bible will you find a more elucidating and illuminating exposition of repentance than just right here. In other words, there is a repentance of worldly sorrow. There is a repentance of worldly sorrow. The sorrow of the world worketh death. Verse 10. Worldly sorrow, dear friends, is not really repentance at all. It is only resentment and remorse. It is resentment of punishment. It is remorse for being found out. Such worldly sorrow does not take into account the hurt inflicted on others, nor does it measure up to what God demands in relation to sin. Such worldly sorrow ultimately leads to death. We've been asked by the President of the United States of America to observe a day of mourning throughout this country. We thank God for the courage of the man and for the searchingness of his words. But even as I've contemplated the ramifications of this, my heart has ached lest we should mourn without genuine repentance, lest our sorrow should be just a worldly sorrow that leads to death. There is a sorrow which is not true repentance. I repeat, it's only remorse, it's only resentment. In a famous sermon preached by Francis Paget entitled The Sorrow of the World, Paget defines repentance, which is purely worldly sorrow. He says it's a compound of depression, sloth, irritability, which plunges a man into lazy languor and works in him constant bitterness. Professor Taskus commenting on this sermon says that this worldly sorrow was regarded as one of the seven deadly sins because monks were particularly prone to it in the middle of the day. It was sometimes identified with the sickness that destroyeth at noonday of which the psalmist speaks. And it's my prayer, and I know the prayer of hundreds, yes, thousands throughout our land today, that across our country will come not only just the morning of remorse and even of, re of resentment, but the morning of true repentance, and that our land may be brought at a tragic hour like this to the foot of the cross to confess our sin and our sickness as a society and get right with God. A clergyman once found some children reading the Dewey version of the New Testament, and he noticed a passage which was translated penance, where the English version rendered the same word repentance. He asked the children if they knew the difference between these two words, and after a short silence, a little girl said, Is it not this, sir? Judas did penance and went and hanged himself. Peter repented. 
and wept bitterly. There is a repentance which is only worldly sorrow. But secondly, there is a repentance which is godly sorrow. And here I want you to follow me closely. Now I rejoice not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. This kind of repentance brings no regrets, but rather leads to the sorrow which God directs. It is a repentance which turns to God and away from sin. It is a repentance which takes measure to correct the wrongs and to restore the fellowship. So Paul rejoices in the actual repentance that had taken place in the church at Corinth. These believers had proved the reality of the repentance because they had taken measures to put right the wrong which was created by their own sinfulness. To demonstrate the thoroughness with which the Corinthians had acted, Paul uses no less than seven phrases or expressions in verse 11. And I want you to follow me as we touch on these very briefly. Look at them. Verse 11. Repentance calls, first of all, for urgency to put things right. Repentance calls for urgency to put things right. What carefulness it wrought in you, verse 11. The thought here is that of active endeavor. The word carefulness is not quite the word in the Greek. It means earnest, active endeavor. There's a sense of urgency about it. How easy it is to mark time when it comes to the matter of repentance in the hope that the wrongs will be overlooked, ignored, or forgotten. We forget that God requires that which is past. And beloved friend, I care not if we talk in terms of national issues or personal issues or right here in the church. If you want to know the joy that comes through actual repentance, if you want to know, my friend, deliverance, then act quickly on the issue of repentance. Repentance calls for urgency. Secondly, repentance calls for honesty to put things right. What clearing of yourselves, he says in verse 11. The idea this time is that of honest apology. Apparently, through Titus, the Corinthians had sent a sincere apology to the Apostle Paul. They'd actually said to Titus, you go back and tell our beloved Apostle we're sorry. And they were honest about it. A veteran missionary was telling me recently that years of experience had taught him that the hardest thing on the mission field among Christian workers was just to say, I'm sorry. The more I thought about that, the more I'm convinced that it is the hardest thing and yet the most needed thing in the Christian church today. Can you say, I'm sorry? Husband, can you say, I'm sorry to your wife? My dear lady friend, can you say, I'm sorry to your husband? Can you say, I'm sorry to the elder, to the deacon, to the pastor? And likewise, can the pastor and others in official life say, I'm sorry? Can you say, I'm sorry? Repentance calls for honesty to put things right. Repentance calls for dignity to put things right. What indignation? Verse 11. Indignation has been defined as hot displeasure over the mishandling of a matter. There is only one way to restore such a situation, and it's to act with dignity. The Corinthians had overlooked sin in their midst until they had become careless and shameless. Thank God repentance with honor could put things right. Oh, the sloppiness. Oh, the carelessness. Oh, the clumsiness of so many people today when it comes to the matter of repentance. And God's calling for dignity, which is inherent in the very thought of indignation. Repentance calls for gravity to put things right. What fear, what fear. 
The apostle had threatened to come to them with a rod, 1 Corinthians 4.21. And his language, it must have been even more severe in that so-called painful letter. The fact of the matter is that there's no room for flippancy or lightness when it comes to judging sin in the church. On the contrary, there must always be a sense of gravity, sobriety. What fear, says the Apostle Paul. But furthermore, repentance calls for ardency to put things right. What vehement desire, like a fire burning within their souls, there was ardent desire in the heart of these Corinthians, not only to see the glory of God vindicated, but to see the face of their beloved apostle again. Paul makes this clear in verse 7, you notice, where he reports that Titus had told him of their earnest desire toward him. The true test of repentance is not only willingness to put matters right with God, but earnestness and eagerness to put matters right with man. It's quite a simple matter to go into the quietness and seclusion of our own home and kneel and say, Oh God, forgive me. I can't carry this load anymore. There's tension and suspicion and I'm not at all happy. Oh God, forgive me. And to leave it there. But so often we forget that the prayer hasn't gone any further than the very ceiling of our bedrooms or our studies. Why? Because God says if you have aught against your brother, you're to leave that gift at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. But more than that, repentance calls for fervency to put things right. What zeal? Look at that verse again. What zeal? As if vehement desire has not covered the whole point, the apostle adds, what zeal? It expresses not only the earnest desire toward him, but also the fervent mind mentioned again in verse 7. There was a zeal to make up for lost time, a zeal to make up for lost service, a zeal to make up for lost honor. When the Lord Jesus rebuked the church at Ephesus for having lost their first love, he said to them, Remember from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. And addressing the church at Laodicea, he said, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, be fervent, therefore, and repent. What zeal? What zeal? Finally, notice that repentance calls for stringency to put things right. What revenge? Stringency. There is a penalty that has to be paid for every sin committed. Let me say that again, in case you thought... It was the slip of a tongue. There is a penalty to pay for every sin committed. And we must not shrink from taking our punishment. In this instance, it was discipline meted out on the offender. Paul praises them that even though he had to urge them to act in this manner, they had eventually heeded his word. We need to recognize that while there is forgiveness with God, there is also the consequence of forgiven sin. So many of us are prepared to accept the first truth that there is forgiveness with God. That's true. But we don't accept the other truth. There is a consequence of forgiven sin. Of course, it depends on the nature of sin as to what the punishment involves. Great or small, however, every sin has a consequence. We must therefore recognize that repentance calls for stringency. What revenge? Concerning the Corinthians, the apostle was able to say, In all these things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did not for his cause, 
that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. Beloved in Christ, on this important Sunday morning, may it always be true of us that we have approved ourselves to be clear before God and before men. The fellowship of jubilation is based on mutual acceptance. The fellowship of jubilation and of joy is based on actual repentance. But now our last division of the chapter, the fellowship of jubilation is based on the joy of virtual obedience. Concerning Titus, Paul could say, he remembered the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling ye received him. Verse 15 also glanced down at 13 through 16. The way in which Titus had been received by the Corinthian church not only comforted the heart of the apostle, but caused him to rejoice with exceeding joy. He could say, yea, and exceedingly the more joyed we for the joy of Titus, because his spirit was refreshed by you. To Paul, this was an evidence of obedience on the part of the believers at Corinth. And from the verses before us, we learn just two things which I touch upon very briefly. First of all, what I'm going to call the general obedience of the saints. The general obedience of the saints. Look at that, verse 15. It's quite remarkable. The obedience of how many? The obedience of how many? The obedience of you all. In spite of the moral breakdown, the divisive spirit, and the hostile attitudes that had cursed the Corinthian church, something truly wonderful had taken place at Corinth. The impact of the apostles' letter, the influence of the ministry of Titus, had brought a change of attitude. Indeed, I'm going to go as far as saying it had brought a revival in the church at Corinth. For Paul could describe the changed situation in terms of the obedience of you all. Before this letter concludes, we shall find Paul addressing a minority who had invaded the church and had become his bitterest enemies. But as far as the rank and file of believers were concerned, they had truly repented and were showing the fruit of repentance and obedience. No wonder he uses a very blessed little expression. I hope you'll underscore it in your New Testaments. Paul says, we joyed with joy. We joyed with joy. We're just full of jubilation. Why? Because of acceptance, because of repentance, but supremely because of obedience. And the obedience of you all, general obedience. But lest we should run away with our thoughts, let's look at it again and say that there's something deeper here. Not only the general obedience of the saints, but the genuine obedience of the saints. Notice verse 15, obedience with fear and trembling. Obedience with fear and trembling. Now this is characteristic of Paul. He uses this phrase again and again throughout his epistles, Corinthians, Philippians, Ephesians, and so on. And wherever we find it, it denotes not nervous panic, as some people have imagined, but quoting Professor Hodge, a solicitous anxiety lest love should fail in doing what is required of us. I like that. Solicitous anxiety lest love should fail in doing all that is required of us. In that classic passage where Paul describes the sublime, the sublime obedience of the Son of God even unto the death of the cross, in Philippians chapter 2, there follows these words. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, 
not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You've seen the obedience of the Son of God, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, not a prize to be grasped at, to be on an equality with God, made himself of no reputation, came right down to the form of a servant, was obedient to his father, yes, and even unto death, the death of the cross. Having seen that sweep of obedience and knowing that you've obeyed in the past, but now with that concept of obedience, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, true obedience does not require an audience. Seen or unseen, it works out in personal salvation with fear and trembling. Before God, there is the fear of accountability. Before men, there is the trembling of solemn responsibility. Such was the outworking of this genuine obedience in the lives of those Corinthian believers that Paul concludes with a most amazing commendation. And I'm telling you, I'd love to write this upon every church in the United States of America, not excluding our own beloved church here this morning. Look at verse 16. Addressing them all, he declares, I rejoice, therefore, that I have confidence in you in all things. I have confidence in you in all things. That is really quite remarkable. How many pastors today could say this of their congregations? And yet Paul could employ this language to describe a church that had passed through moral breakdown, difficult times, including serious failure. Thank God there is nothing that can happen to an individual life. There is nothing that can happen to a local church that cannot be restored and put right through repentance and obedience unto salvation. Charles Finney used to say that revival consists in obeying God with and from the heart. Revival consists in obeying God with and from the heart. The great question, however, is whether or not we're prepared to pay the price for revival in those terms. Whether or not we are prepared to say, O oh God, cast what it will, cast what it will, for acceptance with thyself and my brethren, I am prepared to go right through all that is demanded of me in terms of repentance, and with that repentance, a genuine obedience. And were that to happen across America today, this day of mourning and repentance, were that to happen in our own church, I believe the Spirit of God would be poured out upon flesh and we would see a mighty sweeping revival such as this very city and state knew 100 years ago. So we have seen that in the work of the ministry, the jo joy of fellowship, the fellowship of jubilation is nothing less than the joy of mutual acceptance, actual obedience, virtual obedience. The fellowship of jubilation is nothing less than the joy of mutual acceptance, actual repentance, and virtual obedience. Let us never be satisfied until we see these evidences of God's blessing in our homes, in our churches, in the world. By the power of the Holy Spirit, so let us live, so let us pray, so let us work that we shall produce in our lives and reproduce in other lives acceptance, repentance, obedience, with the Apostle John, may we always be able to say we have no greater joy than to hear that our children walk in the truth, the truth of acceptance.
the truth of repentance, the truth of obedience. Oh, the joy of true acceptance in the fellowship of God, where suspicion and resistance have been cleansed by Jesus' blood. Oh, the joy of true repentance, even at the cost of tears, knowing that with God there's clearance of the sins of many years. Oh, the joy of true obedience in a life where Christ is Lord, serving him with love and patience, living daily by his word. Let us pray. Just one quiet moment while we ask God, the Holy Spirit, to apply these tremendous truths to our hearts. May no one leave this audience this morning without rejoicing in acceptance, repentance, and obedience. Seal home to our hearts, blessed Savior, thine own infallible word, and cause that out of our lives may flow these evidences of genuine revival. And on this day of sadness, oh, turn us into gladness, because thou hast brought victory out of tragedy. Thou hast brought order out of chaos. We ask it through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is olford.org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.